Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount. We're in verse 17 this morning, 17 through 20. Uh, we're in a point on the Sermon on the Mount where we kind of get our first transition. We've spent a lot of time on the Beatitudes in the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount and really seeing the character of the citizens of the kingdom of God. So one thing we can think about when we read the Sermon on the Mount, one thing I'd like to think about to help me as I'm teaching through it, is the Sermon on the Mount is like a guide to the kingdom of heaven. Uh, I've not traveled abroad, uh, not done much traveling even in the United States, but I know when you visit touristy places, they will have a guide for you. So you go overseas, you go to Europe somewhere, you go to France, and so you, you get a, a guidebook to France, right? You, you want to know their customs, you want to know about the people, you want to know the, you, the rules and laws. You don't want to go to a, a place and uh, do, do the wrong thing and wind up in a bad spot. You probably even get to learn about their leaders and the government. And the Sermon on the Mount is a lot like that for the kingdom of heaven. It's a guide. And we've spent the majority of our time learning about the people of the kingdom of heaven. Their character. Um, but now we're transitioning in the Sermon on the Mount to... Um, kind of the, the rules, the commands to follow, which really will go along with how to act and behave based on character. But we're going to see from the lawgiver and the king how we are to behave in the kingdom of heaven. Uh, but you have to think about it from the perspective of what the hearers of the Sermon on the Mount were thinking about their local government or their local leaders, which would be the Sanhedrin. And if you don't know about the Sanhedrin, it is, it's a group of religious leaders, Israelites, really smart Jews who are called rabbis or teachers, they know all about the Old Testament, and they've been put in a position as not just a teacher or a rabbi, but even as a judge. So the Sanhedrin was made up of 72 rabbis or teachers who would come together each day almost and do law things, like judge, hear trials and courts, but they would also teach and set the direction religiously for the nation. So that was in the back of the mind of the hearer of the Sermon on the Mount. But Jesus comes and He starts speaking in a way that sounds a bit different from what they know. Sounds a bit different from what the Pharisees and the Sadducees, who were the main portion of the, the Sanhedrin, things are sounding a little bit different and people are picking up on this 
people are picking up on it and the leaders definitely are picking up on it and you'll find out they actually hated it they hated how what jesus was saying sounded a bit different from what they were teaching and what they were saying and here in verse 17 18 19 and 20 jesus speaks to this i'm assuming he's already hearing some grumbles and some moans within his crowds or within the people so he wants to speak to it and in these few verses this is what he does and what we'll look at he brings some clarity to his stance on what has been taught and what he's teaching he draws a line in the sand regarding obedience And the third thing he does is he settles the standard for righteousness of the kingdom of heaven. So let let us uh, read these few verses. Go to the Lord in prayer and then we'll look at the clarity that Jesus brings to his teaching. Verse 17, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away... Not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, basically the religious leaders we're discussing here, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. A short prayer. Father, uh, your word is before us. Your word that you have given to us. Your word that reveals who you are and your will. And so we pray that by the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit, your word might be spoken with clarity and heard in the same. That we might see and hear and know you more and of Christ Jesus our Lord. And it's in His name we pray. Amen. Okay, so... Jesus brings clarity. Now, and I might not be clear on what He's being, bringing clarity about, but I will, you'll definitely pick up on it as we go. So, Jesus is answering the question, what exactly is your stance on the Old Testament? Basically, that's the question he's asking, being asked, and wanting to answer. What exactly is your stance on the law? What do you think about what the prophets have written? Because what we're hearing, we're not so sure that you're on the same page as us. So where's your stance? Where are you at? And if they thought for a second the people who are wondering and asking the questions, if they thought for a second that they were hearing differently something Jesus was saying as opposed to what the leaders were saying, it's because they were. It wasn't necessarily that He was saying anything different from what the Old Testament says. He's just saying it the correct way that was not being said by the religious leaders at that time. He's bringing clarity to the law. He is speaking it correctly 
and correcting the error of the way it has been was being taught. So Jesus, are you saying this? But we've been told to do that. We've heard it said, as we'll see that comment through the rest of chapter 5. We've heard the rabbis and the leaders say this, but now you're saying that. So can you clarify to us your stance on the Old Testament? And there's Jesus very clearly. Very clearly he says it in verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. So that's his stance. Don't think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. So what, first of all, is the law or the prophets? Basically, it's the Old Testament. When you see that, that pattern, law and prophets, think Old Testament. The law, the first five books of the Bible, written by Moses. There is the history in between Moses and the prophets, but that, that is all included as well. And then you have the major prophets and the minor prophets. But when it's spoken in this way, law and prophets, you can just look at the holy scriptures that were there that day. And that was basically the Old Testament. Jesus says, I have come not to abolish the law and the prophets. So when he says, well, let me just, let's just make sure, or let's see Jesus' stance on the law and the prophets. Just flip back a page, or it might be on your same page. Chapter 4, when Jesus encounters Satan in the wilderness, he doesn't pull out a sword. He doesn't run away. He does what he knows best. He quotes Scripture. And of that time, it wasn't 1 Peter. It wasn't the book of Matthew. It was the Law and the Prophets. And look what he said. This gives us an insight of what Jesus' uh, stance is on the Old Testament. Verse 4. But he, Jesus, answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every mouth that comes from the by every word that comes from the mouth of God. He later then goes on to quote two more verses from the Old Testament. Mind you, I did a quick check. I can't give you the exact number, but just in Matthew itself, Jesus quotes the Old Testament some 30 plus times. And he says, so he's, and not just as he's quoting it that much, but he says to Satan that man shall live by these words. So he's holding the Old Testament, he's holding the law and the prophets. A very high esteem. Plain and simple. That is his stance. That is how he sees scripture. Okay, so back to this verse in 17. He says he's not come to abolish the law and the prophets. Um, if you've got the KJV, it says destroy. He's not come to destroy it. Uh, so this word destroy, we think of like, rip apart, like, like Tasmanian devil kind of destroy. That, it, it's a little bit different. 
Um, it's more of an overthrow, a bring down. Um, it is destructive in the sense, but it's more of a, we have it here, like the, the, the temple is erected and stands tall, right? And this same word to destroy is the word that keeps getting used over and over again in the, in the gospels of talking about how they, they say, he says he will destroy the temple and bring it down. And he will rebuild it. To bring something that is lofted up and to bring it down. I've not come to get rid of it, to, 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 to abolish it, or to lower it. I've not come to do that. Um, I th- as I was thinking about this, and Jesus comes on the scene and starts talking. And he starts talking in a way that is different, reflecting on the law. So then you, a hearer, a normal hearer would say, okay, well, so which way, whom am I to believe? And it reminded me of our kids who homeschool. And their mom may spend an hour teaching them a concept out of the book, right? And they will come to me and she'll like, go do that problem with your dad. And then I'm like, hey, let me show you a different way to do it. And they're like, so are you saying mom was wrong? Are you telling me the book was wrong and how I was supposed to do that? I was like, no, it's just a better way. Or there's an easier way. And so me implying that there's a different way or saying it differently put in their mind doubt. Put in their mind that, okay... Someone's wrong or someone is right here. Now, in the case of math, the analogy fails because there's a lot of way to do a lot of different things. But the point is, is when there are two different teachings on the same thing, you then have to be like, okay, we're talking about the word of God here. Someone is wrong. And therefore, the kind of stir that we get and understanding that maybe this is why Jesus is clarifying because he's hearing the grumbles or the, the moans in the crowd. For Jesus to abolish the law, okay, to abolish the Holy Scriptures would be like having Mark Twain. Y'all know who Mark Twain is? And Mark Twain's standing here holding up Tom Sawyer and saying, I didn't write this. He's the, Mark Twain is the author of Tom Sawyer, right? His name is on the book. And he's like, no, I didn't write that. That's like Jesus saying, I'm come to abolish the law. He wrote it. He is God in the flesh. It is not against him. He is not against it, but it is his word. So for him to come abolish it is outright um, crazy. But see, that, that was also what was being taught and needed to be learned. And that we see at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, when they say, he's teaching us like someone who has authority. Well, he does. He wrote it. It's, it's, it's his words. He has the authority. So he's bringing clarity that he's not come to, to, to do away with the law. But he takes it a step further. 
uh, in the rest of this verse. Kind of like, kind of like an old western. You got the old cowboys around the table, and they're playing cards. And one says, I see you, and I raise you. Jesus raises the stakes right here in verse 17. Look what he says. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law of prophets. I have not. I have not come to abolish them, right? But I have come to do something better. I have come to fulfill them. He raises the stakes, not to throw down, not to destroy, but to elevate. He has come to elevate the law and the prophets. He has come, as he says, to fulfill them, to fill up, to make full. This is the same word that we see with uh, the woman who, an, who brings her ointment into the room and anoints Jesus' feet. And it says, and the odor filled the room. Same word. I got to thinking, it's probably not helpful, but it was helpful for me. I was thinking about a smell that filled, like, like it, just takes a full, it takes the full room up. There's a good one and a bad one. You walk in and someone's cooking bacon, you know it. It fills the room. Or burnt popcorn in the microwave fills the room. Like it overtakes it. Its fullness goes out into every crevice of the house. Well, God has come, or Jesus has come not to overthrow, to annul, to destroy the word, the Old Testament. But he's come to fulfill it, to fill it up, to make it fully known. That word is also used by Jesus when he says that your joy may be full. The fullness of Christ. And I also had the image of a sponge in my mind when I thought about this. Because how does, if God's word is, 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 is his word, then how is Jesus Doing is he? Why is he make? Is it? Is he making it different? And that was really what they were wondering. Are you doing something different? Are you making a new law, a new rule? I thought about a sponge. That is a sponge, right? But it's not. It doesn't. It's not really in its fullness until it soaks up the water. And when it soaks up the water, it is full. A sponge is full and then can do what it is made to do when it soaks up. The water uh, is helpful for me. It might not be helpful, helpful for all of us. But he's come to fulfill. And how? How has he come to fulfill it? It really doesn't give a lot. It doesn't really give anything here. And what he's going to do. But three ways, and I'll run through them quickly. Three ways he fulfills the law and the prophets. The first one we've seen many times throughout Matthew already. That's the fulfillment of prophecy. If you look through chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4, there will be the story of Jesus' life, growing up, being born, uh, you know, being taken from this place to that place, all to fulfill what was said. Right? A prophecy of the Messiah. Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise of a Messiah, a coming one from the Old Testament. Not just 
the spoken words of prophecy, but even the actions that took place prior to his coming gave us a picture of his coming. The flood, the ark, David and Goliath. The Old Testament is pointing to a Messiah, is pointing to Christ, and he is that fulfillment. And for the sake of time, we won't do it, but you can look at Luke 24 after Jesus' resurrection, and the, there is news that he's gone, that his body's not in the tomb. Some have seen an angel and said he's risen. Some of the disciples are just in unbelief. And they're walking down the road and they come up to a stranger, not knowing that this stranger was the resurrected Christ. And they, he says, why are, you, why are you sad? What's wrong? And they say, don't you know what's been going on the last three days? And he says, tell me. I said, well, we thought, we thought, we thought the Holy One has come. We thought the Messiah had come. But he was crucified. He was buried. There's some, his body's gone. Some are saying he's been taken up, but we just don't know. So in that moment, Jesus, still not, them not knowing that it's Jesus, takes them to, to help them understand what was happening on Easter weekend was to the law and the prophets. He takes them to the law and the prophets to show them the gospel. To show them the grace of God through Jesus Christ. His death, His burial, and His resurrection. Jesus is the fulfillment of the prophets. The prophets and all that they taught and all that they look forward to. Number two, Jesus is the fulfillment of the moral law. Basically, God's rules and commands on how we are to act, how we are to behave. Why is Jesus the fulfillment of that? Because no one has done it. No one has been able to keep God's moral law ever. Not even close. But Christ came. Christ came and kept it all. If you look back in Matthew 3... When Jesus is being baptized by John the Baptist, and John the Baptist does not want to baptize Jesus, Jesus says, let it be so, for this is fulfilling for us to fulfill all righteousness. Romans 8. Says this about Jesus fulfilling the righteous requirement of the law. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Christ came, lived the life of perfection, of righteousness, obeying all that had been commanded so that we who lead a life of unrighteousness who are promised the wrath of God for our unrighteousness might have life and be counted as righteous. 
So basically, how did Jesus come to fulfill the law and the prophets? It's just a picture of the gospel. So Jesus says, I've come not to abolish the law or the prophets, but come to fulfill them. To explain it is to explain the gospel. He came as a fulfillment of the promise, the prophecy of the prophets. He came to keep the moral law. He came to fulfill the ceremonial law. What do we mean by that? Well, on the fifth day of the sixth month of the fiftieth year, you are to kill this animal and do this and do this and do that. Every year. But when Christ came, no longer did any of those ceremonies or rituals have to take place because Christ fulfilled the ceremonial law of or escape me sacrificial rituals because he was the ultimate sacrifice he bore the sins once for all not having to do it over and over again but as a perfect spotless lamb as we read in first peter this morning he hung on the cross and died for the remission of sins Look at Hebrews chapter 9 with me. Let me. Let's just read these. We won't spend much time on it. But to see Christ as a fulfillment. When we think of ceremonial law, we think of ritual, of high priest going into the temple, of being cleansed, of blood, blood being thrown on the altar. Time in and time out. Year in and year out. Chapter 9, verse 23. It was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things. Okay, the copies of the heavenly things. It's just talking about the things that were involved in the ceremonial law. Thus it was necessary for the copy of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. The rituals, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself. Christ has entered heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf, not Verse 25, as it was to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy place every year with blood, not his own. For then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he, Jesus, has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. One sacrifice. For all time. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that come judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin. Because why? Because he has dealt with it. He is the fulfillment of the ceremonial law of the ritual sacrifices. But 
but to save those who eagerly wait for Him. Now look at 10, chapter 10, verses 11 through 14. And every priest stands daily at his service. Every high priest has to get up daily to do his job, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices over and over again, which can never take away sins. Verse 12, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, He sat down at the right hand of God. It is finished waiting from the time until his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet by a single for by a single offering he has perfected for all times those who are being sanctified and the holy spirit shall bear witness to us for after saying this is the covenant that i will make with them after those days declares the lord i will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds then he adds i will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. Christ came to fulfill the law as the Messiah who had been prophesied. He had fulfilled the moral law that you and I fail to do each day. He has uh, fulfilled the righteous requirement for the kingdom of God. And He has fulfilled the ceremonial laws and rituals of slaughter, of bulls and goats, for that which cannot cleanse us he has come as the good news for sinners he has come to save his people from their sins he has not come to take away the law if he was to abolish the law it's I can't even say it if he was to abolish the law there would be no Jesus There would be no gospel. It's like a banana split without a banana. He is God. This is His Word. He has come to be the fulfillment. The New Testament, the gospel, is... I read it this morning. The New Testament, the Old Testament is the bud, and the gospel is the flower. You can't have one without the other. How much did Jesus raise the stakes at this point? Back to 5 of Matthew. He didn't just say, you know, yeah, I've come to do this. But he says in verse 18 of Matthew 5, he says, For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. How important are the words of the law and the prophets? They are here to stay, Jesus says. They are here to stay. As long as this world is in existence in this state, Until the end of time, the words of God from Genesis 1-1 all the way to the end of Revelation will stand. They have a purpose. They have a purpose. Every word in the Old Testament has a purpose. 
And until God's plan and promise is fulfilled, until the return of Christ, the scriptures will remain from Genesis 1 to the end of Revelation. Tonight, I want us to, Lord willing, we'll discuss those purposes. We'll discuss the purposes of the law. Um, the reasons why, or the pur- yeah, the purposes of the law. And we'll discuss some of the confusions about maybe why it seems that some of the laws in the Old Testament have kind of seemed to be abolished. Like, we're not, you know, doing the feast and the festivals. We're not uh, commanded to keep the dietary laws. So there are some laws that seem from the surface that they've just been done away with. So we'll, we'll, Lord willing, discuss a little bit of that tonight and see what the New Testament has to say about those types of laws. Um, So why does Jesus have to do this again? Why did he have to clarify this? Why did he, why does Jesus' teaching sound different from the current religious leaders? And this is where Jesus draws the line in the sand of what obedience really is. Look at verse 19. So verse 19 is Jesus' command, but it's also, an, it's also enlightening us in how those teachers of that time were teaching. Let me say that again. Verse 19 is a command of Jesus of how we are to keep his commands, but it's also getting us, giving us insight onto the wrong way to teach and to live. And that's how it was being done. So verse 19. Therefore, whoever relaxes, your, the King James Version might say breaks. We're going to talk about that in just a second. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So that word relaxes or breaks is very important here. Therefore, whoever relaxes or breaks one of the least of these commands, what is he saying? Now, imagine a stick, if you had just a stick and you broke it. You broke it. That's really not the image this word brings. So imagine the stick connected to the tree, right? So now it's a branch and you break the branch off the tree. You've now removed the branch from where it was supposed to be. So not a breaking as in like destroying it, but a breaking as in like taking it away from its intent, its purpose, where it's supposed to be. And that way, this, the word break or relax really literally is loosen, to loosen. We see all in the Gospels, Jesus tells the disciples, hey, it's time to go to Jerusalem. I need a ride. There's a donkey tied up. It's tied up. I need you to loosen it. That's the word he used. I need you to loosen it. I need you to untie it. I need you to take it away, break it off from where it is. This is kind of the idea of this relaxing or breaking or loosening these commandments to remove it from its intent. The commands of God are demanding. Let me say that. The commands of God are very, very demanding demanding. Now, we might hear and say, well, God wouldn't call us to do anything that we couldn't do. The commands of God are very demanding to the point that they are impossible. 
You just read the rest of chapter 5, and we will get to it. It is demanding. It is deep. The commands of God aren't surface level. But the religious leaders of this time were trying to relax the law. They were trying to break away the law and loosen it so that they could, they could live a life that is easy but appear to be holy. So they have broken a law. They have not in the sense of they didn't do it, but they have broken it away from God's intent and purpose. Not that they would be tied down, but still yet be obedient to some degree, trying to break free of the true demand of what God's commands bring. So here's the way they were teaching. And here's the way the Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes lived. It was far-reaching, but it was shallow. So let me give you some images to think about when we think about this idea of making God's commands easy so that we could appear to be obedient, right? Here are a few examples for you to think about. Um, When you're in the military, you do push-ups, right? And you usually do a lot of them. But one thing you can't get caught doing is shallow push-ups. So they're like, give me 50, Okay, and you're like, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. (laughs) That's not what they want. So to do a shallow push-up is to do a little bit of work so you can have a big quantity. See that? The, the, The less I do, the more I can count. One, two, three, you know, keep going, keep going. Or you could think about it, um, and this, about a pancake, you go to a restaurant and they give you this like pancake this big, but it's like this thin. And like, here, this is the best, pan- it's so big. Oh, I want a good, fat, big pancake. Not a thin, smoothed out to appear to give me something more than what I actually have. Or if you've ever been to Biloxi, you ever gone to the beach at Biloxi, you get there and you're like, oh, the ocean is beautiful, the beach is beautiful. And you go out into the water and you're thinking you're going to get to swim and all this. Good. And you start walking into the water and it's at your ankles. And you keep going. You keep going. And it's still at your ankles. And you keep walking. And you keep walking in the ocean and it's still at your ankles. You're like, this is no fun. The water gave an illusion of this beautiful beach. But it never got past my ankles or my knees. And so it gives an illusion of something that is great, but truly the depth of it is shallow. And that's what Jesus is saying that we cannot do and what was being done. The the Pharisees and the Sadducees had determined that there were 280 laws in the Old Testament to keep, and they were going to check off every one of them. But they'd made them simple. 
They had removed the demand that the law actually brought, that the command actually brought. And just so that they could say, I haven't done that, I check it off. I haven't done that, I check it off. I haven't done that, I check it off. And so to the people, they appeared as holy, but they were as thin as a flat pancake. They were as shallow as the the ocean at Biloxi. There was no holiness and no righteousness to them at all. But they had fooled the people. But they had not fooled Christ. And so you get, at the end of this passage, verse 20, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees, oh, oh, they keep like 280 laws. I can't do that. Unless you exceed their righteousness, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. It's kind of a difficult statement because unless you exceed their righteousness, you cannot enter the kingdom. Well, they had none. They had none. This goes back to the righteousness of Christ. This goes back to what Jesus said he came to do. And to fulfill all righteousness. To fulfill the law and the prophets. And as we'll see as we go through the rest of chapter 5. to a, You can't just walk around saying, I go to church. I have my Bible. I haven't murdered anybody. I haven't committed adultery. I love the people who love me. That's the thin righteousness. But what we'll see from Jesus is, you haven't murdered anybody recently? Have you hated anybody lately? You haven't committed adultery in your 30 years of marriage? How many times have you looked at a woman and lusted? Oh, you love your brother and your mother and your father, but what about your enemy? And so Jesus comes. He comes with the demands of the commands of God and the demands of God's commands are heavy to the point that they go internally to your heart, to who you are. So, if you are to be called great in the kingdom of heaven, you must keep these commands and you must teach them. So, does that mean I need to try harder? Be better? Maybe sounds like it. But what do we what do we know? What do we know? We know that by the grace of God, we know that by the grace of God, by the indwelling Holy Spirit, that we can obey. The promise, the promise of the new covenant as we looked at, uh, as we mentioned this morning in Jeremiah 31, 
is that God will write his law upon their heart. So again, we get to this miraculous, this supernatural. You could try to be good and righteous, but ultimately what you're going to do is flatten out God's commands and seek a shallow righteousness. But for those who are in the kingdom of heaven, those who are citizens of the kingdom, know their need. They know that their heart is wicked and that they need Christ to give them a new heart, to write His laws upon their heart, to put His Spirit within them. And this comes only through faith in Christ. Well, I believe I have faith. Does it result in obedience? Does it result in loving the commands of God as much as... No, I won't say that. Does it come with a desire to live an obedient life? Jesus says, follow me. He didn't say go to church. He didn't say call yourself this or do this regularly. He said, follow me. At the end of the, this chapter, he makes this statement. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. I want you to think today. Are you perfect? If you're shaking your head yes in your mind, you're wrong. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect is a reminder that you need God. That you need His Spirit. You need His forgiveness. You need Christ Jesus. So, can we be perfect? No. But I'll just finish with this. Paul says, Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. Now, if I stopped there, you would tell me that I would tell you that Paul is a legalist, that he is much a Pharisee as anyone else. Why does he press on to make it his own? 
because Christ Jesus has made me His own. Are you a servant of Christ? Have you surrendered to Him? Is He your King? Has He brought you into this kingdom? And if He, if he has... I ask that you consider to make it your own, to seek perfection by keeping the law and the commands, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, pressing on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let us seek to obtain holiness and blameless because Christ has saved us despite being anywhere close to holiness and blamelessness. By faith in Jesus Christ, believe on Him and repent. And that is a call to all to follow Christ. And that call should be, even as believers, repeated in our head each and every day to be reminded to follow. And to follow and to obey. And it begins with faith. I'm sorry. It begins with faith. Let me say this. To be obedient apart from faith will get you nowhere. So what does it mean to to have faith? It means to have your eyes closed. It means to have your eyes closed and God says, you can't see. And He says, I'm holy. Take a step forward. And you take a step forward. And with your eyes closed, He says, you are a wretched sinner in need of wrath. with wrath due, take a step forward and you take a step forward. To have faith is God to say, I have sent my son to bear your sin, to, to take on my wrath that you deserve. Take a step forward and you take a step forward. And it's for him to say, now do as I have done and, been, and told you to do. And you take a step forward. you have not taken a step forward knowing who God is, who you are, and your need of Christ's forgiveness and His righteousness, take that step forward. Believe. And then obey. And love. Let's pray.